This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. Today you are going to meet Nick Langley, who works at the Humpty Doo Barramundi Farm in the Northern Territory. He'll tell you what it's like trying to look after these iconic Australian fish. Barramundi fish, as will know, they'll eat just about everything and anything they can fit in their mouth, um, which for us unfortunately includes their brothers. Uh, so we have to be very careful uh, making sure that they're able to they have enough room, they have enough food, um, so we don't lose a uh, large proportion of our fish to, to each other. Yes, barramundi can be a bit cannibalistic and they're also hermaphrodites. You'll find out more about that, what it's like looking after those fish after news headlines at half past 12 today. And just before one, Danny Burkett along going through today's wool market, which is down again this week. Six past 12. Global fertiliser prices have dropped significantly in recent months. But there's still a lot of volatility in the market and analysts expect prices to remain high into the first quarter of 2023. In April this year, the price of diammonium phosphate or DAP ex-Morocco was around $1,800 a tonne. In October, it had dropped to $1,200 a tonne, still historically very high if you look back over the last decade or so. Andrew Whitelaw is an analyst with Episode 3. Andrew, what's your reading of the fertiliser market? Look, I would say it's very volatile. If, if we look back at, say, August and September, we saw some really, really sharp increases in price. And this was off the back of, basically, natural gas prices went absolutely through the roof when there was all this difficulties in Europe with getting gas down the pipelines from Russia. But since then, there's been quite a few sort of government interventions in that gas space, which is basically put a bit of a ceiling in gas prices. And so we started to see the fertilizer price starting to sneak back down, still historically very high if we compared to the last 10 years or so. And also the other thing that's happening as well is that at these really high levels, we start to get what we call demand rationing or demand destruction. And this is where farmers around the world are looking at the price and saying, well, actually, I might not use as much this year. And so if that gets sort of spread across, you know, the hundreds of thousands of farmers around the world, then suddenly there's less and less demand, which pushes prices down. So it's, it's really a sort of interesting sort of period at the moment for fertilizers in that they are extremely volatile. We've seen it just going up and down, up and down, from basically the best part of well, since the start of this year, really. And you mentioned what's happening with the price of gas. And basically, if you overlay uh, the prices of a gas, like a graph of that, over the fertiliser, it's pretty much tracking each other. Is, is, is that right? That's right, yeah. And, and, it sh- and it naturally should. Basically, the reason behind that is that fertilisers, like a lot of synthetic fertilisers, urea especially, is basically the conversion of gas into urea or into ammonia and then into urea. So we're really talking about a process which is heavily energy intensive. And the majority of of those fertilizers are made using natural gas, or in some countries it's actually made using coal. So we just see a very close correlation between gas prices and fertilizer. So we know that if gas prices go up, fertilizer is going to go up as well. 
and so it's it's a fairly fairly close relationship with the two. Andrew, I don't know if you've got some of these figures there with you now, just if you're able to break down some of the the prices of those key components of fertiliser just to sort of demonstrate those sort of movements that we're seeing. Have you got any of those figures with you? I don't have the figures with me, but off the top of my head, if we talk about correlations, we do know that natural gas and urea, as an example, has a correlation of about 0.8 to 0.9. Basically, that means if it has a correlation of one, it's a completely perfect relationship. So it has probably even a closer relationship than, say, APW wheat in Konana and Chicago wheat. Right. So if gas goes up or goes down, then it will have a direct relationship with the, uh, uh, with the fertilizer because fertilizer is basically just gas converted into another product. Yeah. What about the price of, say, urea? It, it, just to give us an idea of how much that has fallen just in recent times. Like I, don't, I don't have the number and the number at hand. And, and it's, what's really important as well to understand is that we have a very distinct market in Australia in that our prices don't necessarily always reflect what is happening overseas. And so we're seeing big falls in the major production areas, like in the Middle East and uh, the Gulf of Mexico, so New Orleans. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it will reflect in Australian prices. Oh, so we don't see that at the retail level? Well, at the moment, like, I guess if we look at things like grain prices, yeah, we can jump onto grainmarkets.com, clear grain or daily grain and get access to a whole bunch of grain prices. Or if we're looking for livestock prices, we can look on MLA or Auctions Plus. But with fertiliser, there's no real ability to see what the actual price is in Australia. There's not so much price discovery or, or transparency as there are in other agricultural commodities. On the country, I'm catching up with Andrew Whitelaw. He's an analyst with Episode 3 and really honing in on what's happening with fertiliser prices at the moment. Andrew, the other major factor here is the Australian dollar, which opened this mm. morning below 63 US cents. And at that price... I mean, everything we buy from cars to machinery to fertiliser is going to be expensive. So with that in mind, fertiliser is still expensive, relatively speaking. Yeah, fertiliser is still expensive and we don't expect it to be at the sort of long-term average anytime soon. And, but you could be completely correct. We've got a, a low Aussie dollar, historically speaking. And, and that means that all of the things we import, which is basically everything we use on farm, chemicals, diesel, machinery parts, all that type of stuff is going to be more expensive. But, you know, it's kind of a bit like taking with one hand and giving with the other. And we do export the majority of our commodities, especially in the West Coast, whether that's wool, uh, sheep meat or, or grains, they're exported, which makes our products much more attractive. So the, there is some benefits as well from a, from a low uh, Aussie dollar. Some of the um, farm consultants, um, agronomists that I've been speaking to are saying that a lot of farmers are now doing their budgets pre-harvest because harvest's only just starting here and they're already mm. crunching the numbers for the season ahead and they're going ahead and purchasing crop protection requirements so and sort of doing that before Christmas time. So not necessarily purchasing the fertiliser at this point but kind of locking in a program ahead so they already know what sort of fertiliser needs they're going to have for next year when they get started. When do you buy? When, when is the time to jump in? 
There is the one billion dollar question: <laughs> when, when do you buy? But 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 you are right. We and and we are seeing more and more purchases being made further out, as opposed to historically the purchases have been made closer to the actual start of the new season. So we are seeing people buying their whether it's chemicals or fertilizer way in advance of seeding, and look at that's that may work and it may not work. It's no different to selling grain. When do you sell grain? Well, in hindsight, we all know when the best time to sell grain is. And in hindsight, we know the best time to buy our inputs. But uh, the reality is, at the moment, it's it's a relatively high-priced environment. But there's also uh, a lot of people have been concerned in recent years for actually getting access to stocks. And maybe that's making people make the decision earlier. Yeah, and those and those assessments are being made on farms. And you mentioned this earlier, too, about what's going to be planted, you know, area planted and also mm-hmm. the the split in the the enterprise, the mix of that, you know, stock and, and grain kind of weighing up what's the best way to go. Yeah, and I think that's it's important that people are being really objective with these decisions and, and getting some good data to make these decisions because everything is tighter. And we, we've spoken about chemicals, we've spoken about fertilizer, but there's not much that a farmer uses that isn't really expensive at the moment. You know, machinery. If you can get machinery, it's expensive. Farm labour, if you can get it, is going to be expensive. Chemicals, fertiliser, diesel, insurance rates, everything's expensive. And so I think it's important that people make decisions that are going to be given the best return and reduce risk on the farm. All right, well, let's just have a a little crystal ball look at what's ahead as far as fertiliser prices go. What are you thinking? Like I think it's it's going to be still relatively high, you know, right through till the end of this year and into into the next quarter, like the first quarter of 2023. I think it's going to take a while for any falls overseas to to flow through. But I also suspect that there's still a bit of volatility out there. We've got a marketplace. Gas is largely driven by what happens in Russia and what Putin decides to do. I think we could see some hiccups along the way especially when we come into what is the really high demand season for natural gas, as the Northern Hemisphere, especially Europe, heats their homes and, and powers their facilities. But I expect it to be relatively relatively high going on. Andrew, great to get your thoughts. Thank you so much for being part of the show. No worries, any time. Andrew Whitelaw, he is an analyst with Episode 3, going through those fertiliser prices it is quarter past 12 on the country hour and there was a, a farmer I spoke to recently who broke down the costs per hectare and how they've risen over the years and he's sort of in a 300 to 325 rainfall area. He said in 2021 it was $270 per hectare for cereals we're talking about, so wheat, barley and oats. So in 2021, $270 a hectare. 2022, $358 a hectare. And looking forward to 23 next season, $440 per hectare. And I mean, a lot of that is fertiliser, but there's other things too, fuel, wages, insurance, finance, everything included. But it really does give you an idea of those increases and fertiliser very much at the top of those lists. 16 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varasketti on ABC Local Radio WA. Supermarket giant Coles has responded to criticism that it's being rude and cheeky for rejecting calls from farmers and suppliers to pay more for their produce. 
Now, earlier in the week, Lobby Group New South Wales Farmers Vice President Rebecca Reardon was saying that farmers are facing a series of compounding challenges from natural disasters to those skyrocketing input costs. But Coles has rejected calls to increase those returns. Now, I'll read you that Coles response shortly. First, CEO of Vegetables WA, Stephen Brown, says it's difficult to hear the news that a major supermarket isn't prepared to pay more for fresh food when farm input costs are through the roof. Fertiliser costs up 70%, chemicals up 70 fuel costs 50 wages 15 and insurance 40 so I'm not really sure when you're wearing those sort of costs, Andrew, how much room there is left, to, if there's any room to trim anything. So what do you make of it? Because I mean, the ABC's uh, seen evidence of these requests uh, to eastern states, farmers and suppliers. Yep. What, and what, and what, I'm sure they're coming down the line over here very shortly if they haven't got here already. You know. So is there any scope at all for WA vegetable growers to reduce their costs? Generally speaking, I would say no, because at the moment when we talk to them, uh, their costs are going through the roof and, um, you know, they're, they're struggling like every other small business to control costs and there's only a limit to what they can cut out of it to, you know, to pass further up the line. But we have to remember that a lot of stuff in the eastern states is related to sort of weather and, um, you know, our lettuces have never got to $11. I don't think they've even got past about $3.90 at Coles. So uh, I, I think, generally speaking, there's probably room for Coles to give our members and our growers and our suppliers here in WA a little bit more money, bearing in mind, as you said, the uh, lady from the New South Wales Farmers point pointed out that Coles made a net profit to the end of June 2022 of $1,048 million. So I... I think they're really, really pushing the limits when they're pushing back to small businesses and asking them to, you know, consider their costs and look at their whole cost structure because, you know, to be honest with you, there's just not the profit in there anymore. Now, you mentioned there that there, there is a different environment there and it's an unfortunate environment for a lot of the eastern states growers. Uh, are, are your members filling some of that gap? Are you able to send produce over there? When there's surplus in seasons, you know, some of our bigger growers have got the ability uh, to send it east. But, of course, I'm not sure if you're aware, but one of our members told me the other day that the railway line between Adelaide and Sydney is out of action for, has been for about a week and probably will be for another week due to the rain around Forbes and those areas where the train line runs. And as you're aware, fruit, vegetables and all that does have a shelf life, some longer than others, but some of the shelf lives are pretty short, so... It's sort of making life difficult for them at the moment to try and get east, to try and help any of those people over there. But generally speaking, the majority of what we produce here, apart from carrots, is consumed locally and we do export. Um, our growers do export a significant volume of um, carrots overseas each year. CEO of Vegetables WA, Stephen Brown, with Andrew Collins. 20 past 12. And if you're able to, text through and just let me know the sort of cost input cost increases that you're facing and maybe some of the decisions that are going on in your business to try and cope with those costs are changes you're making in the business just to maybe try and make some savings along the way zero double four eight nine double two six zero four 
to text through and let me know what's happening at your place. Coles says it's absolutely committed to working with suppliers to navigate the challenges associated with inflation to ensure that it's helping Australians with cost of living pressures while being fair and mindful of the impacts facing suppliers. It says over the past few months, the number of requests it's received for price increases have risen significantly and the supermarket is dedicating additional resources to ensure that it's dealing with these requests in a fair and timely manner and in accordance with the grocery code, being mindful of both the impacts to suppliers and to its customers. Cole says when it comes to natural disasters, our fresh produce teams are absolutely committed to supporting our suppliers on the ground and it's working closely with farmers and growers to help their businesses recover after devastating events such as the floods in the eastern states. 21 past 12. Shortly an update from the newsroom for you and then checking weather conditions right around Western Australia. First, though, the federal government is committing over $30 million over the next three years to boost on-farm connectivity. To tell you how this money is going to be spent, here's Communications Minister Michelle Rowland. But it basically falls into four categories, the first two of which are definitely covered and the other two we're consulting on in terms of scope. The first is about extending coverage, so coverage extension through things like um, repeaters and boosters that many of your listeners will be already familiar with and also the installation of that kit. So that is definitely included. Can we just break that down a little bit? Sure. You're talking about um, the need for boosters, what areas they're needed in, or are you talking about actually supplying boosters? We're consulting on that at the moment, but we know that that will be in scope. Um, It will uh, cover uh, the extension of coverage, but also the installation of that necessary kit. And the other aspects that we're currently consulting on to see what should be in scope is the device side. So there's almost limitless numbers of devices to take advantage of what's known as the Internet of Things. That's everything from sensors to other sort of transponder devices, a lot of which are already capable of being purchased off the shelf. The second component of that too is sort of like the managed services that go with that. So for example, you can have an app, there are providers that enable people who utilise this technology to have sort of a a whole of business solutions. So whether it's the specific devices or the solutions that go with them. And as I said, this is quite novel, but we want to ensure that the talk about the Internet of Things, the talk about the benefits of machine-to-machine technology, not only in 5G but also in existing connectivity, can really be maximised by farmers. Minister, when we talk about telecommunications, it's very easy to slip into jargon and almost be speaking a different language. But Mm. for people listening to you today, how will this money actually affect their business or their ability to operate? Sure. And I think it's useful to combine this with what we are doing around uh, another election commitment, which is extending funding for the regional tech hub. That regional tech hub provides really practical advice to people who, you know, as many of your listeners will be quite tech savvy, um, a lot of them may not be, but they can utilise right now the regional tech hub and say, for example, I'm able to get a good signal near my homestead, but once I go out into the field, I don't, I really need connectivity, I really need to have a signal within a certain number of metres, what can I do? And they can receive advice on the different 
types of sort of existing kit they can purchase. This can be anything from um, something small that magnifies the existing signal and sends it out further, or it can be additional dishes, for example. What is the tangible outcome of the funding in this year's federal budget or in this past week's federal budget? This will enable technology to be utilised by these farmers to produce things more quickly. So just as as an example, this is around at the moment, you will see like cattle, for example, that has a tag on its ear and it will have a sensor on a gate. So as the, the beast passes the sensor, it counts. So for example, that's one of the simplest forms of that kind of technology. But with what we're talking about here can actually be quite advanced. It can be machine to machine. I think the key thing here, Kath, with this policy is we're really opening it up for consultation to say what is out there at the moment and what do you think might be useful to you because it's one of those programs where it's not a one-size-fits-all. Okay, but it's not funding direct to the farmer. We're designing the program at the moment to determine whether it will be subsidising the actual equipment, whether it will be, for example, a voucher system. Um, So we just announced the money in the budget last week, but the program design is already well underway in terms of options and we'll be releasing those um, in the near future. Communications Minister Michelle Rowland with Kath Sullivan. 26 past 12. The first ore has just been processed from a major mineral sands project in Western Australia's Gascoigne. It didn't happen overnight. It took more than 20 years from the deposit's initial discovery to this important milestone. And I'm talking about Strandline Resources' Coburn Mineral Sands Project, which is found just near Shark Lake, about Shark Lake. Shark Bay, about 800 kilometres north of Perth. Managing Director and Chief Executive Luke Graham says it is a huge milestone for the company. Uh, We're on our way. So we're in production. We'll be ramping up over this next few months and and really tuning the plant uh, as you do. And we've got about a six-month ramp up, six to nine-month ramp up curve on our project there. And we'll be producing... It's in a two-staged sort of ramp-up process. So we've brought online the wet concentration plant, which produces a, a really rich basket price of, of heavy minerals, so containing zircon and some titanium minerals, rutile ilmenite, and it also has a little bit of the rare earth mineral called monazite in it. So we produce the concentrate. We'll sell a few shipments of that while we're still constructing our mineral separation plant. So we do plan to separate those minerals into their final product form. But yeah, a few shipments of concentrate prior to that coming online, you know, um, and ramping that up into the new year. So very exciting. How long has this project been on the horizon for the company? Yeah, it was first discovered in 2000, so 22 years this type of project is quite capital intensive, even though it's quite capital efficient in compared to other mineral sands projects around the world. We had about a $240 million capital investment for the Coburn project to construct it. Uh, so it takes a long time. So yeah, 22 years, been a long journey. One of the key things that has made the project really in demand globally is the supply shortfalls um, of our products around the world. And we're really lucky that we've been able to attract some of the biggest off-takers around the world for our product suite. So about 55% of our revenue is Zircon. And we have a premium 
zircon. It's a really white zircon. It's got low impurities. And that's heading into the um, big ceramics market in Europe. So we're selling all our premium zircon into Italy and Spain customers. And it goes into ceramic tiles. So as you can imagine, what drives the demand is when people are, you know, renovating their kitchens and their bathrooms, they're getting ceramic tiles and, and there's large format tiles now. There's a real modern cosmetic trend happening around the world for large format tiles, floor to ceiling nearly. And there's more zircon that goes into those these days for their strength properties and glazing properties, etc. So that's for the zircon side. And then on the titanium side, our product's going into TiO2 pigment. That's paint, paper, ink, plastics. And uh, we are selling uh, our rutile and our ilmenite into America. And then whatever doesn't efficiently report into those final product streams goes into a concentrate that we sell into China. And the rare earth mineral goes into that as well. But about 80% is America and Europe and 20% of our revenue stream is China. So quite a big differentiator for Strandline to be able to have that diversity. And that, 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 that has certainly underpinned our financing and, and the bankability of our project as well. Strandline Resources Managing Director and CEO Luke Graham speaking to Steph Sinclair just about how they are now officially in production with the first shipment of heavy metal concentrate on track to be shipped out of Geraldton by the end of the year. And that Coburn Mineral Sands project has a 22-year mine life. It is right on half past 12. Great timing, Herlin Kaur. She's in the studio now with the news headlines. Hello. Good afternoon, Belinda. Happy Friday. In the headlines, a retired detective who worked on the disappearance of a Perth woman 34 years ago says it's impossible to know whether someone else was responsible or she vanished on her own accord. Former Detective Sergeant Ronald Carey was testifying at an inquest into the suspected death of 22-year-old Julie Cutler, who went missing after a work function in 1988. Two people are in a stable condition after being injured in a helicopter crash in WA's north. Four people were aboard the aircraft when it crashed after takeoff near the Coomarina Roadhouse south of Newman. A 62-year-old man was flown to Royal Perth Hospital for treatment while another patient was transported to Newman Hospital. And Ireland has won the toss and elected to bowl against New Zealand in the team's final group match in the Men's T20 Cricket World Cup in Adelaide. New Zealand sits on top of the group ahead of England and Australia and can secure a place in the semi-finals with a victory before the hosts meet Afghanistan tonight. More news at one. Helen, thank you so much for that. It is 29 to 1. You're with Belinda Varaschetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Danny Burkett along just before the news at one, going through the wool market details. It is down again this week. Also, just popping over to the eastern states, checking in with um, some parts of New South Wales and Victoria, taking a look at the flooding there and the impact of that. And then having a little look around at the biggest barramundi farm over in the Northern Territory. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology, Angeline Prasad. How's it looking around the Southwest Land Division? Good afternoon, Belinda. Yes, a fairly benign day across the southwest land division. Just a few very light showers uh, closer to the southwest coast, basically south of um, about Mandra to about Albany. But otherwise, it's a beautiful sunny day. We have got a a trough moving inland. So there are cooler temperatures uh, west of this trough as it moves inland. So still a bit warm. across the um, sort of the far eastern parts of the southwest land division into the gold fields as this trough moves inland.
weekend. Now, um, tomorrow should be uh, fairly good as well across the Southwest Land Division. However, we do expect uh, this trough that's moving inland to start deepening and a low pressure system is expected to form in the in the Gascoigne and then move into the gold fields on Sunday. So as this low pressure system deepens, we'll probably start to see... Um, uh, isolated thunderstorm activity starting to make an appearance uh, across uh, parts of the Southwest Land Division could be as early as later tomorrow. So there's a risk we could see very isolated thunderstorm activity from later tomorrow evening to the northeast of Perth, so mainly over the western parts of the uh, central weed belt. We're not expecting much rainfall out of these thunderstorms. They're going to be fairly high base, but there's that risk of lightning. Now, these Thunderstorm activity does uh, become a bit more prevalent on um, on Sunday, especially through that uh, central weed belt and maybe extending to the Great Southern as that low pressure system deepens and we see a bit more weather activity. East of this low pressure system and trough, especially uh, through uh, the gold fields into the interior, we will see this risk of uh, uh, damaging winds from uh, those thunderstorms. Uh, uh, initially, it will be over the interior tomorrow and over the in- inland parts of the Kimberley, but those um, uh, sort of um, uh, thunderstorms will extend uh, into into the southern parts of the state. So we are looking at some active weather uh, starting from later tomorrow uh, through parts of uh, WA. And that's likely to continue into Monday where we see um, a cold front come through across the west. The good news is... Um, We've, uh, we're going to see much cooler temperatures next week across the Southwest Land Division, but it is going to be a wet week, um, potentially, you know, starting from, from Sunday. So not much rainfall tomorrow, but there's that risk we could see some rainfall um, and it is going to be quite varied um, so for example on Sunday there could be as little as one millimeter through the agricultural areas but if those thunderstorms do de- do develop we could see up to 10 millimeters and that you know one to 10 millimeter uh, sort of um, rainfall continues on Monday and potentially a lot more on Tuesday where the weather system is fairly active as that cold front moves through so we could potentially see about 10 to 20 millimeters mainly of the central wheat belt so that wet weather is like likely to continue into next week. A bit of respite on Wednesday before the wet weather returns with that next cold front coming through. Across the north of the state, um, we are looking at um, uh, increasing showers and thunderstorms. So that's bringing some respite uh, from the heat wave conditions that the north has been experiencing for quite some time now. Um, however, uh, from uh, from Sunday, Monday onwards, uh, the thunderstorms do become a bit more isolated. So we'll see those low, low intensity, generally low intensity heat wave conditions return so stay hydrated in the north uh the heat isn't over we're in the midst of the build-up it is you know a hot time of the year um and um and uh, enjoy the cooler temperatures next week although it is going to be quite wet in the south and then the warnings this afternoon angeline yes so warnings uh there's not much out just a strong warning for the gascoigne coast today um, tomorrow, we'll see those strong winds extend to the Ningaloo, Geraldton, Lenslin, Perth and Bunbury coasts. Uh, probably early next week on Monday, we'll probably see some extreme fire dangers through the parts of the south interior um, uh, as sort of the warmer temperatures move into the interior, sort of later Sunday into Monday. Uh, and there's that risk of um, uh, damaging wind gusts from thunderstorms uh, starting from tomorrow, um, especially over inland parts. Angeline, thank you so much. 24 to 1 here on the Country Hour.
and checking the rainfall figures. Not a lot of rain about the state in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. In the Kimberley, Kununurra Arrow had 12, Kununurra 8 and Lake Argyle Resort had 10. And in the southwest, a few locations just received sort of two or three mils, but that is about it. Earlier in the hour, I was just mentioning a conversation I had with a farmer recently who was in a sort of uh, 300 to 325 millimetre rainfall area. And he was just going through the costs, how they've um, increased those input costs over the last couple of years. So to put in a, a cereal crop, so wheat, barley or oats or something per hectare in 2021 cost $270 per hectare. 22 it was $358 per hectare and forward planning to 23 next year, $440 per hectare. So, you know, that's things like fertiliser, fuel, wages, insurance, all those things wrapped up in that. On the text, in response to input cost rises, could that farmer you were talking to also tell us the returns per hectare increase for the last two seasons? I think that you will find per hectare that his profit margin has increased significantly. And a question, what month of the year do farmers whinge the least? The answer is February, because that has the least days in it. 0448-922-604 to text through with your thoughts between now and the news at one. Now, the flooding situation in parts of the eastern states is still very serious. Huge sections of land in New South Wales are now underwater. That's killing crops, pasture and even some livestock. About 300 kilometres west of Sydney is Forbes and farmers in that area have seen flooding before. For example, just a few years ago, there was a lot of rain and flooding in that area, but it was welcome because it came after a big drought. The current situation is worse. One farmer just west of Forbes at Condoblin estimates he's had about 2,500 hectares of his property currently underwater. The Forbes sale yards is now a holding pen for all sorts of livestock. Cassie Wormsley is the manager of the Forbes Central West Livestock Exchange and says she's never seen anything like it. We've had a few floods over the last yeah, five or six years, but this one people are starting to pan- well, they're panicking yeah, and looking at a few of the photos and listening to a few people. I think they had every right to be. I can see water from the sale yards down towards um, the back paddocks. So, and I've never seen that before. So, we'll be out of water here. How has the floods affected your place as well? I moved out of home on Tuesday night and brought a caravan up to the sale yards. And I'm a little bit anxious. Um, usually, I stay there, but this time I, yeah wasn't worth the risk so I've got a few head of cattle there hopefully the neighbours are keeping an eye on those and fingers crossed my house stays okay but I'm pretty sure all the sheds and that'll be under my house is raised I've always got cut off there but it's never really affected me greatly I've just couldn't move but um, this time I think the whole place will be under I did think about moving my few head of cattle, but I thought, oh, there's a bit of a high spot there. They should be right. But um, now I'm starting to panic. But I'll just wait and see what happens. How are you feeling about um, this flood peak that still hasn't quite hit Forbes just yet? I'm really worried. Being a sale yard manager, I know a lot of farmers around the place and I've heard some horror stories already of 
sheep being stuck on islands, cattle being stuck, and they've been trying to get them off. But, um, yeah, it's been wet for so long. Yeah, so I think we're going to lose a lot of stock, a lot of feed, and after just coming out of that drought, yeah, it's going to break a few people. And there's also a concern that uh, the floods in this situation may not recede very quickly at all, so this could be quite a prolonged event. Is that a concern for you? Yes. So, like Lake Jellago, Uabalong, Condo, they've been inundated, and that's where this water's got to go to, and there's just nowhere for it to go. So if it sits around, like I said, all the feed's going to yeah, just rot and... We'll be back to bear paddock like the drought. So what will be the role for the Forbes sale yards over, the, over today and, and the next few days as, as we see this flood and the flood peak? I've put it out on social media and that if people need to bring their any stock, more than welcome to bring them up here. There's dry paddocks, or slightly dry paddocks. We've got yards, undercover yards. Um, we've got people with horses here. Yeah, like I said, we had 20-odd pigs chopped off yesterday to keep them out of the flood water. And, yeah, we like to ha- think that people can feel welcome to bring their stock here. Cassie Wormsley, the manager of the Forbes Central West Livestock Exchange, talking to Josh Becker about the flooding situation in the central west of New South Wales. 18 to 1. The Victorian government um, is estimating that about 12,000 farming properties have been affected so far in the flooding that they're dealing with. More than 3,000 farm animals have died in the floods over the last three weeks and at least 900 are missing. 5,000 kilometres of fencing has been damaged and 50,000 tonnes of hay or silage has been written off. Damage in the area around Echuca is starting to become more apparent as the floodwaters slowly start to recede. And Echuca is just a few hundred kilometres north of Melbourne. Rural reporter Luke Radford went for a drive to check out the flooding with Kate Burke, who's a former agronomist and agricultural researcher who lives in the area. She's worried things won't dry out for a few months. Our landscape here is really diverse. So we've got sort of creek systems that run through irrigation areas. We've got flat, you know, border check irrigation areas. And then we've got broad acre as well. And so on our left for the moment, we're driving alongside one of the larger irrigation channels. And then on the right, we've got broad acre wheat crops. So it really goes from a... um, you know, all the way from south of Elmore to north of um, Moama and it's heading up towards Daniloquin. To the west it goes all the way over past Kerrang and to the east it um, goes east of Shepparton. So it's just a mammoth event really. And in terms of the impacts on the actual... I mean we, we've seen broadacre crops this morning that have been properly flattened and that's that's game over. But really for a lot of these other crops it's going to be the long game that's going to be the interesting thing to keep an eye on isn't it yeah that's right it'll depend on how how long they sit in in water or whether the water can get away from from individual crops and every farm is different and I guess that's the message I'm really cautious about generalizing because you only have to go a little bit further 
west into the Mallee and the Wimmera. There's, there's water over there too, but there's still some terrific looking crops with great potential. And even around here, the, the potential of the crops that will survive and be harvested is probably double what they normally would be. So for some individuals, you know, the, the good stuff will override the bad stuff. And then for some really unlucky individuals who just happen to be farming in the lower spots, you know, they'll, they'll have some huge financial impact. So it, it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all situation. And in terms of the, the financial impacts, I mean, it, it's hard to say what that looks like because, as you mentioned, it's so individual in so many ways. But especially with, with what we've seen this year with the, the high impact of, of these input costs that have just gone through the roof, I mean, I, again, I hate to ask you to generalise, but what kind of impact do you, are you expecting to see at least? Well, I guess the first impact on that is just the mental impact. I, I know they've spent 30 to 40% more than normal. They've been chasing a yield potential that's double normal. And now we've got this horrendous wait of four to six weeks to see what the outcome will be. And, and that's going to be a, a really challenging time. And then what are the other impacts potential? You mentioned like earlier on we've got this, it's not just a wet year, it's a La Nina year combined with a negative Indian Ocean dipole year which creates a double whammy of wet conditions that could hang around till December. Now flooding's obviously a fear, but what about other impacts of continuous rain? Well, well that's true. So, you know, one of the impacts will be for, for dairy guys, it'll just be, you know, normally this is when they do all their fodder conservation, and so they might have missed the boat with silage. They're going to be after feed later on. They get to the point where their cows are, you know, constantly under moist conditions. That can be really challenging too. There could be crop quality issues, and it's just a delay in harvesting and getting onto paddocks. And, of course, machinery delays will be the other big thing because it'll just stay sodden for so long, won't it? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in 2010 11, harvest just dragged on and on into the early months of, of 2011 because a lot of the rain came in the January. I mean, hopefully, this, this episode will be over in terms of rainfall before Christmas. Um, but, you know, we just don't know. And the IOD negative looks or the the modeling which is quite accurate these days has us in this iod plus la nina phase for at least to the end of november so i guess that's one of my concerns is that this isn't a you know a fortnight event this is something that's going to be around with us for weeks and possibly a couple of months and i think that's really important to to understand even this first phase the water at uh, Achuka for example will stay above major flood level for at least the next seven days and then we just got to see what the rainfall cycle does to us after that. Kate Burke from Think Agri, a former agricultural researcher and agronomist with Luke Radford taking a look around Achuka a few hundred kilometres north of Melbourne. 12 to 1 this week on Landline, meet Alex, the robotic avocado packer. What do you think about your new working buddy? Uh, she's not very talkative. 
and why are so many vets across Australia struggling? We have to educate them to say we don't have Medicare. No one knows that that x-ray machine that I just took x-rays on cost me $94,000. That's Landline, Sunday at 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Have you ever thought about just packing in your job and moving to the far north of Australia? Well, Nick Langley is from Victoria and just a few years ago he decided to do exactly that and he hasn't looked back. He's now working on Australia's largest barramundi farm and he loves it. Uh, yeah, so my journey is a little bit different. Um, I actually was born and raised in Melbourne, um, so I've come up from pretty much the one of the coldest parts um, to come up here. So from straight out of school, I was straight into university in James Cook University in Townsville. From there, I, I studied for about five years, um, getting a Bachelor in Science with majors in Aquaculture and Marine Biology. And then I furthered my studies with a Master's degree in Aquaculture. Um, from there, I was fortunate enough to get a job working um, on a, a prawn farm um, just south of Townsville and Air, um, and I was there for two and a half years working on their uh, environmental uh, management team. Um, and then sort of times changed and, and my partner got a job up in the Territory, so um, I sort of followed suit. Um, and then, yeah, I was fortunate to come across an op- uh, opportunity here at Humpty Doo Barramundi. Um, they were obviously hiring technicians for their new nursery, which was only a couple of months old. Um, and yeah, jumped on the opportunity and, and I've been here for just over two years now and, and sort of haven't looked back since. Farming prawns, farming barramundi, is there much difference? Yeah, huge difference. Um, obviously barramundi is a lot more sort of interactive. Uh, prawns, they're, they're at the bottom of a pond doing their thing. Um, it's very static culture. Not to say that it's, it's boring by any means, there's still certainly plenty of opportunities and challenges there. but fish can be a little bit more uh, sort of needy I suppose at times but we constantly have to monitor them and, and move them around and do that sort of thing so um, and they also require a lot more more water and a lot more sort of attention to detail I guess you could call it not to take anything away from prawns. Um, now I get it and then tell me your job at the farm what does it involve? Uh, so I'm the one of the frontline supervisors in this nursery um, so working with my with my manager um, we sort of run this operation of, of 14 tanks um, it's a very new system that we're running here. It's only about two years old. Uh, so we're constantly looking after little barramundi fingerlings. Uh, they arrive in our nursery at about 20 grams. And then by the time they leave here, they're about 200 to 250 grams. So they're in here for about a total of six weeks um, before they sort of make their journey between the other nurseries to the, to the ponds um, where the next stage takes over. So that's decent. Did you say 20 grams to 200 grams? In six weeks, yeah. that's bulking up, isn't it? It is. They absolutely fly through when they're in here, um, especially when the water's nice and warm, like we are at the moment. Um, these little fish go absolutely nuts. Um, so we have to yeah, constantly look after them, um, monitor them as well every week, and then we also have to grade them and sort them to size um, so that uh, they stay nice and healthy, they don't start eating each other, uh, and they keep trucking along in, in the production cycle. So. That's for, I'd forgotten. They can be cannibalistic, can't they? Absolutely, yeah. As, as I'm sure many um, barramundi fish shows will know, they'll eat just about everything and anything they can fit in their mouth, um, which for us, unfortunately, includes their brothers. Uh, so we have to be very careful uh, making sure that they're able to they have enough room, they have enough food, um, so we don't lose 
uh, large proportion of our fish to, to each other. Yep. And you're right, they are just tanks filled with boys, aren't they? That's exactly right. All barramundi, as we know, they start off as boys and then uh, yeah, about that later stage in life they turn into girls. So, yeah, a lot of hungry little boys we've got in here. You're from Melbourne, you're working here now. What keeps you in the Northern Territory? I think it's the lifestyle more than anything. I think it's about one-third of the population owns boats, so that works beautifully with me going fishing every weekend. Love my fishing, love my outdoors, um, so it's, it's a fantastic place to be. It can certainly be hot at times, and that has its challenges, but um, having just bought a house here as well, I think we're, we're definitely in here for the long term, and, and uh, the people are great up here, so we're really fortunate to, to be in a place where we're so happy. When you go fishing... Do you get much joy from catching a barramundi? Surprisingly, yes. Um, I'm not sure there's too many people in the world that would work with one particular animal and then on their days off go and try and catch the exact same animal. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very unique situation that we're in, but to be honest, we can't get enough of it and we just absolutely love it. So, yeah. Are you in the metre club? I am, oh. yes. <laughs> That's why you're standing taller than I am, you see. I'm sort of hunched over and yeah. lacking confidence, but look at you. It was a freshwater one, so I'm not sure if that counts. That counts. It yeah. counts, yeah. yeah. So, but uh, definitely the upcoming months uh, when it starts raining, that's going to be the goal for next year. So hopefully get a big saltwater meter. Thanks for your time on the Country Hour. No worries. Thanks for having me. Nick Langley from Humpty Doo Barramundi with Matt Brown. I reckon they're heading out on the boat this weekend. That is Australia's largest barramundi farm. It's just near Humpty Doo in the Northern Territory. And after years of expansion, it now produces about 100 tonnes of barra each week. It employs about 150 people. So a lot of fish, a lot of employees who've come from all over to work in the hot, humid conditions of the top end. Six minutes to one. Danny Burkett along shortly to go through the wool market for you. First, though, Australia's first all-Indigenous wool harvesting team is gearing up for its first national competition after facing world-class competitors in New Zealand last month. The Merino Shears in New Zealand was the young team's first time competing against much more experienced competitors. Samson Tefata heads the wool harvesting sector at the Dubbo-based Regional Enterprise Development Institute. And he says the all-Indigenous team performed well in New Zealand and stands a good chance at the national competition in Bendigo next month. We're just so excited that we're able to actually take them there in the first place and, and the competition there, we're overwhelmed with having us there. Yeah, I heard um, when you went there, you know, members of the audience burst into a spontaneous haka to welcome your team. Yes, that's a, for me, that's a natural occurrence. But for, for most, it just comes out of nowhere. And, and that's just the way it is in New Zealand, especially in our Māori culture. Have you been trying to encourage more um, Indigenous shearers to come into the industry? Yeah, I think there's a natural occurrence there. Uh, our young ones out there, mate, they're going to do it all for us. It's, it's the time is now to, to encourage our youth. This is just a beginning, and uh, I know they're out there, and I know we need their help. What do you think are the chances of uh, your teams going to the World Championships in Scotland um, after Bendigo? Yeah, I, I think we have a good chance of getting there from out of uh, in the selections. Our, our team members are pretty up there, if I could say it like that. Samson Tefeta, he's from the Dubbo-based Regional Enterprise Development Institute. Good luck to them in Bendigo next month. Four minutes to one.
Hello, I'm Rachel Mealy. Join me for The World Today, Australia's cyber vulnerability. New figures suggest someone is hacked every seven minutes. In Pakistan, Imran Khan's aides accused the Prime Minister of orchestrating an overnight attack that's left him hospitalised. And more evacuations in New South Wales. Today, it's Forbes residents battling the worst flooding in 70 years. The World Today, join me. The news not far away at four minutes to one. Time now to take a look at the wool market, which is down this week. The eastern market indicator is down 39 cents to close at 1,261 cents a kilogram clean. And the western market indicator is down 33 cents to finish at 1,394 cents a kilogram clean. Danny Burkett, what's the story? It falls through all three centres, and that was on the back of a combined withdrawn passed-in rate of 25%, or one quarter of the catalogue that didn't actually get cleared through the sale. So um, a heavily cheaper market on the back of one quarter of that wool not actually getting traded. In Fremantle, 17 micron closed at $20.50 clean. That was off 50 for the week. 18 microns fell 45, closing at 1730 19 microns off 35, 1525 on the close, 20 micron 1380, that was off 35, 21 micron 1295, again off 35, and 22s off 30 to close at 1245. If we look at those in a decile ranking over the previous 10 years, and that takes into account um, the worst of the pandemic that we saw and also the highs of 2019 that we saw. Uh, 17 micron at the 60% decile, so roughly 40% of the time above today's price, 60% below in the last 10 years. And then 18 through to 22 micron sit roughly at the 50% mark or the halfway mark. Pieces and bellies off 55 clean over the two days. They fell on the first day and fell again on the second day. That was regardless of seed fault, regardless of micron. Good news in the market. Lockstones, crutchings, all dearer, plus 10 and lambs, once again, I would suggest for probably 12 months running, fully firm, if not tending a touch dearer, and they also include those shorter wiener types. If we look at a 17 micron bale, 68% yield, a good merino fleece wool, $2,580 a bale, 18 micron, 2175 19 micron, 1910 20 micron, 1735 21s and 22s. 16.30 a bar and 15.65 a bar. And Danny, who was on the list buying this week? Well, it was great to see the West Australian-based company PJ Morris Wools. They took 14% of the Merino fleece wool on offer across the country. Tech Wool, 12.5%. Endeavour Wool Exports, 11 And TNU, 11%. Crossbred, I know not a large market in WA, but worth noting, Tech Wool Trading, the largest buyer in that segment of the market. Merino Skirtings, Tech Wool, the second largest buyer. So Tech Wool again in the market, but a good spread of buyers. The comment was made there was sound competition, albeit at a much lower level than we saw last week. And what can we expect for next week, Danny? Well, if ever it lines up well for the West Australian wool market, this would be it. We have just shy of 36,000 bales on the market between Sydney, Melbourne and Fremantle. Sydney is a designated super fine sale. So that, in essence, leaves roughly 20,000 bales of top-making wool. So hopefully with a falling exchange rate, 
by Bojack World for the Wool Market. Great. Thank you for the wrap, Danny. It is time for the news, one o'clock.